Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, <laughs> planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to global news and social artistry here on KOPN, your community radio station out of Columbia, Missouri, 89.5 FM on your dial if you still do that one. Um, we're happy you're with us. My name is Dick Dalton. I'm the host of the show. Each week we have a, a chance to talk with people that are building a more humane world from the inside out. And for a number of years I've been trying to get the guy that is sitting with me live in the KOPN studios today, Michael <laughs> Michael Cochran from uh, Springfield now, born in West Plains. Um, I won't tell you too much about him to start with, but just a little bit. He... he uh, he had some time in Columbia. A long uh, time. A lot of time. A long and, time. And we'll, we'll cover some of that as, much, as best as we can. Uh, he had some time down in Springfield. Uh, and, uh, you know, saying that you had time there has a ring to it that maybe we need to clarify. Well, I, I'm, I'm still in Springfield, and I've been there 31 years now. So. <laughs> I'm at... Spending time in a penitentiary is usually <laughs> what we say, spending time. <laughs> Fortunately, I avoided that, just barely. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I want to make sure that sometime in the hour we cover your authorship of uh, four amazing collectible biographies on people that I think everybody will recognize the names of, uh, Chet Atkins, Les Paul, uh, Hopalong Cassidy, and Don McLean. So yes. we'll get into that, too. Um, so, um, Michael Cochran, welcome. Thank you, Dick. I'm really glad to be here with you and that we could finally <laughs> get ourselves in the same spot at the same time. I haven't been elusive on purpose. It just hasn't worked out till now. But anyway. Well, as we know, this is the right time. This is the time. <laughs> this is the right time. What do you want to know? Well, <laughs> you know, I met you... For the first time in front of my father's store when you came to do some painting for some something he was hiring you for mm -hmm. to do a little, I don't know what it was. Odd but job. Odd job. And then I saw you around the corner sitting in maybe a rocking chair up where the blue note is. <laughs> uh, and you had some kind of a gig. Of, I had a store. And I never went in it. but Well, uh Yes. We know it. What we know is the Blue Note. We know is the Varsity Theater originally, right, right. but it had had a second life as the Film Arts Theater. Oh, in the oh yes, yes in the in the mid sixties. Yes, I saw through a glass darkly. Maybe there, I saw like a blow that. up there. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, uh, and it was Commonwealth Theater's attempt to have an art house. Yeah, in Columbia. I'd forgotten all about that. Uh, yeah, they had an art gallery on that mezzanine up there. I probably never went to the art uh, gallery. <laughs> but in any event, the film arts folded after a few years, and I was looking for a place to open an antique and collectible store. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And fortunately, I, I met with the supervisor of Commonwealth Theaters in Columbia, a guy named Bob Walters. Mm -hmm. And we kind of hit it off. He at first said, no, we're not interested in renting it. But 
cut to the chase, he did rent it to me mm-hmm. for a very reasonable amount of monthly rent. Mm-hmm. And I had a successful run there. My store was called Second Nature. Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that I did that from about 72 to 75 or 6. Mm-hmm. But you had come up to be a Mizzou student in 62. Fall of 62. Because we're the same age. And yeah. I started at Mizzou in 62 as well. So did I. And yeah, I remember I came from a town of around 5,000 people. West Plains is that big? That big? It was that small oh. back in 62. <laughs> it's about 15,000 now, and I hardly know the place. But um, <clears throat> I'm from Fayette, so uh, 2,000. Yeah. Right. Okay. And uh, the freshman class I entered was over 5,000 kids. In Mizzou. Yeah. Yeah. So the freshman class was bigger than the town I came from. <laughs> and uh, I was greener than I thought I was. I, by this time, I had read On the Road by Kerouac. Oh, wow. And that bent my head pretty good. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was fairly hip, but really I was just a kid from the sticks. Mm-hmm. And I was exposed to all kinds of things in Columbia that I hadn't been before. <laughs> and it had a major impact on me, but I loved my years in Columbia. I lived in Columbia from 62 through about... 77, so about 15 years. Yeah. And not only did you do odd jobs like painting and whatever, but uh, you um, and your second nature, but you, I heard just today, played on the first KOP show. I did. I don't remember the exact date, but it was in 1973. Mm -hmm. And if I remember correctly, I think the station's frequency was not 89.5. It might have been 89.7 then. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But anyway, yeah. Uh, Harry Pearl, who was one of the early engineers who wired up a bunch of cast-off surplus equipment, or they they inherited some equipment from KDNA in St. Louis, Mm. and somehow managed to get it all patched together Mm -hmm. to get the station on the air. Mm And Ken Shepard had a group at that time called uh, Stud Dutz and the Hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> and Ken was Stud Dutz, and uh, and I, he and I were best friends. Okay, very close. You know, Dutz D U T S is Stud spelled backwards. Oh my so, goodness! Yeah. Oh my goodness! Boo! Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it was Stud Dutz and the Hardcore, mm-hmm. and they were playing there. Um, let's see, that was Joe Bidewell on piano, Tom Kemper on drums, and um, Wayne McCormick on bass, Ken on guitar and vocals. And I wasn't a member of the band, but I was there that day and was singing harmonies and participating. Yeah. Yeah, that was a red-letter day. The birth of KOPN. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And so uh, KOPN has had a very dear place in my heart ever since. And I've played live on KOPN a few other times in later years. Well, how appropriate for us to be here inaugurating the 50th year anniversary. Yeah, and this is my first time to see the new uh, station location. Looks pretty nice. Yeah, well, it's very clean. (laughs) Yes, it's very clean. It's like... I walked in and said, where's all the dirt? (laughs) Oh, we loved that place. I loved uh, it, yeah. 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 Well, you 
went on to do some KFRU. Um, yes, which, I did. How did that, you get that job? Well, that's an interesting story. I'll try to make this efficiently quick. I had in the I was a an experienced Forest Service lookout. <laughs> I had my first post in 1965 when I was 21 years old. Is that where you met Lee Ruth? <laughs> no. No, but I knew Lee I knew Lee before that. Lee and I met in astronomy class at Mizzou in 1962 along with Bob Dyer was he in the same no, class? Bob, who, no. Who else was? Doug was Doug in no, the same class? No, it was just just Lee and I. Oh, I, okay. Uh, and you know, Lee has for years and years been this real skinny, tall guy with mm-hmm. a big bushy beard. But in those days, he had a neck like a football player. Oh. You know, the kind of neck that starts at the ears and goes out. <laughs> <laughs> I can't yeah. imagine. But we uh, we both played guitar, yeah. and we quickly bonded over that okay but but anyway you had history with uh, the forest service okay yes and um yeah that summer on rice mountain in the remote mountains of idaho in 1965 really changed my life Hmm. remarkably because of course we don't have time to go into it but they flew me up there in a helicopter because the trail up to the lookout was still under snow and they had they were renting this helicopter by the day the forest service didn't have their own helicopter so they hauled me and my gear which included a typewriter (laughs) and i don't know 50 or 60 novels and a big old great pyrenees dog that i had picked up out of the Boise, Idaho animal shelter on my way to report for work because I didn't want to be alone up there. Mm -hmm. I mean, they landed me on this little rocky mountaintop with a little old shack with windows all around, got all my stuff out and put it on the ground, put batteries in the radio and said, okay, we'll see you. And they, what about the food? Food. Yeah. All my provisions were with me. Mm-hmm. But I'm, the point is, they didn't stick around. No, they had other a lot of other things they wanted to do with that helicopter. So I just there's this kind of seminal moment when I'm standing there on this mountaintop, twelve miles from the nearest logging road, and that helicopter <laughs> flies away, <laughs> and I watch it grow smaller and smaller and smaller. And I looked down at the dog, who I named Sylvia, and I said, well, here we go. It's just us. Yeah. And, you know, i got to say, I was not an accomplished, I was not a survivalist or, mm-hmm. you know. But anyway, and I spent 72 days up there alone with no electricity. Oh. No telephone. That's right, yeah. No running water. I had to hike a couple of miles down the mountain with a back water pack mm-hmm. to get water. Mm-hmm. So, and I wasn't even sure I could do it, but I did. Mm-hmm. And when I came down off that mountain, I was a different person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just want to include that. Then, so subsequently, mm-hmm. I had other lookout posts, one in Arizona on the Kaibab National Forest and 
71 or 2. Mm-hmm. And then I was a Red Top Mountain Lookout on the Wenatchee National Forest in Washington State mm-hmm. in 1976. Mm-hmm. And those were highlights of my life. Wow. Doing that work. Mm-hmm. Greatest job in the world. You if sit you up, like to be alone. Well, you sit up there. And I can't say you do nothing because you have a lot of responsibility. If there's a, if somebody spots a fire that you should have seen before you do, that's very bad. Mm-hmm. That never happened to me. Mm-hmm. You have to pay attention. Mm-hmm. But really, you're paid to sit up there with a view of paradise. Mm-hmm. And, it was great. So where were we? And somehow Malin Aldridge heard about <laughs> oh, yeah, you. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, here it is. I, I had a really great time uh, on the Wenatchee National Forest that summer and fall of 76. In fact, I came back to Columbia just to finalize whatever affairs I needed to finalize and take care of my belongings, I was going to go back to Washington and stay there permanently. Oh, whoa. Yeah. And I I had already been hired for the next season. Mm-hmm. And in the early months of 1977, for some reason, my right knee blew up. Hmm. It it swelled up like a cantaloupe. I could barely walk, and uh, related to the prior, it injury? might have been related to the car wreck in 1963. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I kept waiting and waiting and waiting, and finally, and it didn't get better. And so finally, I had to call the Forest Service and say, "You know what? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to tromp up that mountain. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to make it." Mm-hmm. So I'm still in Columbia. I didn't have a job. I was very low on funds. And I was driving down Paris Road one day. And I had a AM radio only in my truck. And I had it tuned to KFRU. And I heard them say, we have an, op- we have an opening for the morning announcer at KFRU. <laughs> if you think you could do this job, apply. So I was... I walked into KFRU. I turned right around and went there directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's I walked right at the in. End of now, Paris, this is right? going yeah. to sound really arrogant. But I walked in, <clears throat> and I said, I'm Michael Cochran, and I'm here about the radio job I heard about on the radio. And they said, do you think you can do that? And I said, I can do anything. <laughs> and? <laughs> and? Nobody at the station wanted to hire me except for one person. And that one person was Malin Aldridge. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. He saw something in me. Mm-hmm. And when he hired me, because listen, Dick, that announcer's chair for morning drive on KFRU was the hot seat. I, I never listened to it. Tell well, me about but I'm well I'm just saying it. It was the most important air shift of the day. Oh, okay. Everybody listened to it. Ah. I so, mean, Norm, yeah. Norm Stewart. Yeah. Everybody. <laughs> everybody. All the politicians. Um, and I think they were running 14, minute, 14 commercial minutes an hour. Mm-hmm. All according to a log mm-hmm. that you had to follow. 
And I'd never done anything like this before. It was frightening. Mm -hmm. So many ways to make mistakes. And I made a few. But mm -hmm. it, I, I excelled. I did okay. And uh, I did well enough that KGBX in Springfield came and hired me away mm -hmm. to go down to Springfield. And that's how I got to Springfield. Well, we have skipped a little bit of music information, mm -hmm. and I'd like for you to set us up for a song by Sound Farm, and we're going to play a clip from the song that you set up, and then we're going to take a little station break and Great. come back. <clears throat> well, let's see. I think it's the song of the wandering Angus. Angus. And that's not like an Angus cow. No, this is it's A-E-N-G-U-S, which was the Irish god of love. Okay. It, he's a mythological figure uh -huh. in Irish mythology. In the, I'm going to look him up. When well, I'm it's a, the poem was written by William Butler Yeats. Mm -hmm. Okay. Possibly Ireland's greatest poet. But a little bit before this, starting in 1966, a group of us were getting together and doing what we, I don't know what you would call it, but we were making recordings of absolutely music by chance. You used a word to... to a aleatory. Aleatory. I, I love that word. Yeah, it just means by chance. Okay. We would get together with various instruments and various states of mind. <laughs> what year was that? Okay. 66. <laughs> we would make up a title turn the tape recorder on, and with no pre-planning or rehearsing or preconception at all, just start. You on an acoustic guitar. Yes. Your pals on other yeah. little tinkly instruments. Castanets, maracas. Yeah. Uh, Voice. My friend of mine had a kazoo that he stuck inside an empty gallon jug <laughs> bottle. I mean, we weren't trying to make commercial music. We were just experimenting mm -hmm. with the idea that all sounds can be incorporated into music. And two, there were no mistakes. No mistakes. You couldn't make a mistake. Yeah, so we're not going to hear any mistakes on this song that's coming up. <laughs> well, you know, and <laughs> these recordings we made, I still have them. And they're fun to listen to, but there's a lot of chaos. It didn't always work out. Yeah. Occasionally, we would find a groove that would get really nice and beautiful, but we couldn't hold it. Yeah, it would. Yeah, the wheels would fly off. Well, but that's the way life is. But that was when I uh, founded the Sound Farm in 1967. That was still a part of me because it was really exhilarating to do that. Oh yeah, and some really wonderful discoveries were made. You have to listen so. Yeah. To everybody. You're just you know, if you in. give creativity a chance to just come out yeah. without trying to put a muzzle on it mm -hmm. or a bridle, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A you know, a lot of trash happens, but a lot of great stuff, too. Yeah. So this first song we're going to hear was uh, included on the Sound Farm's 1969 album titled Harvest. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's Song of the Wandering Angus. Words by William Butler Yeats. Dave Walter, an um, original member of the Sound Farm, came up with the melody. Okay. I came up with the guitar part. Mm -hmm. 
And in the middle of this song that we're about to listen to, you will hear human voices just kind of flying around like birds in the sky. Mm -hmm. And this is aleatory. We had an arrangement for the song. We knew what we were doing. But we came to this one section in the middle. It was different every time. Cool. So it'll make sense when you hear it. This is Sound Farm, 1969, Song of the Wandering Angus. Oh, 
And welcome back to Glocal News in Social <laughs> Artistry. Dick Dalton, your host, Michael Cochran, our guest today. We just listened to one of the songs, uh, Sound Farm, produced back in the 60s here in Columbia, Missouri. 69, yeah. 69. There, uh, at the end of the song, that was intended to be sunlight. Ah. The silver apples of the moon, the golden apples of the sun. Ah. just... We tried. You did. Oh, boy. I and got goosebumps several times. Well, good. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Very nice. So uh, we'll get another clip from another song a little bit later. But uh, you're now shifting gears a bit from KFRU. I'll tell you what. Before we go to Springfield, I have a kind of a particular interest in a guy that we both sort of knew you knew better than i did dr john nyhart oh at mizzou you yeah. had a personal relationship with him i just took his video class uh, the year before he died i did i uh i i i was in the last class he taught live mm -hmm. it was in 1964 mm. it was a one-hour class met once a week for one hour in the arts and science auditorium mm -hmm. big lecture hall it was called The Mountain Men, in which he read from his, he's probably more famous for Black Elk Speaks, the book, mm -hmm. but his epic poem, A Cycle of the West, right. is what we were studying. Thick book. Thick book. <laughs> he has been called the Homer of America, and not Homer Simpson, mm -hmm. you know. Right. And uh, yeah. I, that, I was so enthralled with him. He sat on the stage. He was four feet eleven inches tall, mm -hmm. eighty-four years old, with <laughs> vibrant energy, reading his work to the class, and he read so powerfully. His voice caressed every word, mm -hmm. and I was smitten. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that first class, I walked down to the lip of the stage and said, sir, I'd really like to be your friend. Wow. And he said, why, sure, young fella. Come on, let's go over to the student union and have a cup of coffee. Wow, just like that. Yeah, because, well, think of it. He spent 31 years writing A Cycle of the West. Wow. <laughs> That's uh And even though he received recognition and righteous praise for that, he still didn't, he still, I think he was still hungry for recognition. Oh, yeah. Who wouldn't be, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I think just a young guy coming down and without any BS, just saying, hey, mm -hmm. could we be friends? Mm -hmm. And we were. I, I Beautiful. had a number of meetings Beautiful. with him and Loved him very much. Well, I, I I knew a little bit about your relationship only because much later you went out to the ranch uh, mm -hmm. more recently with his daughter, and you recited something to her just yes. standing there. Yes. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Well, his daughter, Alice, uh, I had visited him at their... Skyrim Farm, it was mm -hmm. called. Mm -hmm. 
and his daughter Alice was a really well-known and highly respected equestrian. Mm -hmm. She taught people to ride there. She trained horses there. She was very serious about it. And when I first started showing up out at the farm to see her dad, she was kind of dismissive of me. Mm-hmm. She was like, oh, boy, another groupie. Mm-hmm. I got work to do. <laughs> but in later years, yes, the time you're talking about, a good friend of mine, Richard Robertson, um, took me out there to see her. She didn't remember me, but when she realized how well I'd known her dad, she really warmed up. And we, mm-hmm. we yeah, we yeah. had a really good visit. She's passed on now, yeah. so. I got to attend the uh, library uh, gathering where she and several folks uh, sort of celebrated a an event of getting together and celebrating Dr. Nyhart. Yeah, and, she could recite most of his poetry hmm. from memory. Wow. You know. What a mind. I think the poem I might have recited that day was Easter, maybe Nyhart's most famous hmm. poem. Um <clears throat> But, yeah, I'm very, very privileged to have known John Nyhart. He was a great man. You have been uh, honored to get to know some other great men. (laughs) I guess so. I don't know how this happened. (laughs) And I ain't referring to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I wouldn't say that. Here you go down to Springfield. I'm I'm a big admirer of yours. (laughs) Well, thank you. You know, I've seen you on the street in Jefferson City holding up your peace signs when you're the only one there. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's a weekly peace Uh, vigil. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. well, you know. Yeah. I'm not standing there with you, but I sure admire you. Well, I'm your representative every okay. Wednesday at noon. Because <laughs> I am a peacemaker. <laughs> you know, everybody is. So. Should be. Yeah. So, uh, what's the question? Well, you, you're going to Springfield. You uh, H. Uh, what's it? KGBX. Yes, I was had a good run at KGBX. Hired you out of KFRU mm-hmm. to go down and do. I went down there to be their music director and do afternoon drive and eventually became the program director and I had a great run uh, <clears throat> it all came to an end when the station went dark because of hard times but mm-hmm. yeah I had a lot of fun there well when did you and your brother go to Nashville and what wasn't okay. that when you were in Springfield or was no, that back no. when you were in West Plains yes oh uh, so I kind of got the story of timeline I, on. I um I first heard the guitar playing of Chet Atkins around 1954. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I heard it, it it was galvanizing. Mm -hmm. I never heard a sound like that before, or Mm -hmm. a guitar played that masterfully before. Chet, of course, used the alternating thumb bass and picked with his fingers, finger style. Okay. And... uh, I just kind of, I just became almost an obsessive fan. Mm -hmm. I had two older brothers, and I kept talking to them about Chet. We got a hold of a couple of his albums, started listening to them, and then they became infected. Oh, great. (laughs) Uh, Did you all play instruments then? Well, we we all started. We all started then. Mm -hmm. But in in December of 1960, I was 16. My brothers were oh, um, 19 and 
23. Oh, And it was Christmas break. I was still in high school, of course, and they were in college. And uh, they they were home on Christmas break. Mm -hmm. And I was yammering on about Chet. And my older brother, Russ, said, well, why don't we just drive down to Nashville and meet him? Cool. So we borrowed a folks' car, and we drove to Nashville. And we did meet him. (laughs) All right. That was a wonderful trip. We got backstage at the Grand Ole Opry. We faked our way in there. and You were wearing something kind of special, weren't you? We all had Pendleton jackets. There you go. They they didn't they weren't exactly the same but they were all you know you remember Pendleton I Jackson? do yeah. yeah we had those on and I think um, <laughs> and you went in the back door yeah I'll tell in. you this story it's going to use up some time but it's a good story so it's cold and you know it was in the old Ryman Auditorium uh-huh. and if you walk down the right hand side of the auditorium as you face the front way back at the back corner was a stage door. And it was standing open because it was pretty hot inside. Oh, okay. And there was a big old fat, red-necked, southern security guard there. (laughs) And we walked up to him, and we were going to do something like, sir, do you think we could get backstage? But before we could even do that, Lester Flatt walked by inside. He walked by the open door. Mm -hmm. And we went, hi, Lester. And he looked at us and waved, and the guard motioned us on in. He thought we knew Lester Flat. We didn't know Lester Flat. <laughs> he knew what he looked like. But we got in there, and I mean, I met so many people that night. I met June Carter. I met Johnny Cash. I met Flat and Scruggs. I met a great guitar player named Jackie Phelps, who was on Hee Haw for years. Uh, Jim Reeves. They were all there. And you know, that backstage at the Opry, it was... On a Saturday night, it was like a family reunion. These people would be out running the road, but then when their time came to play the opera, they would all come back to Nashville. So it was was magical. It was just great. So, no, I forgot where we were. Now, Chet wasn't there that night. No, Chet wasn't there that night. He was supposed to be, but he had been called away. But Mm -hmm. we we met him when he got back in town. And um, And this is going to lead to... You writing a book about yeah, Chad Atkins. Yeah, yeah. Uh, years later, uh, I became <clears throat> editor of a magazine called the West Plains Gazette, which was all about the history of West Plains, Missouri, and Howell County, Missouri, and it also encompassed uh, Ozark County and Douglas County and Oregon County. Mm-hmm. And it was a very high-quality magazine, very you know, it was Life magazine size, oh, tabloid okay. size. Mm-hmm. Slick paper? Printed on slick paper mm-hmm. with uh, covers that were coated with plastic. We wanted them to last 100 years. And uh, we printed stories and pictures about the history of the area. Mm-hmm. And we sent those to Chet. Oh. And Chet loved them. He wrote us a letter mm-hmm. and said it reminded him of his own youth growing up in the Clinch Mountains of East Tennessee. Oh. And it also gave him a chance to be exposed to my writing. 
mm-hmm. which we haven't discussed it, but I had quite a few things published before this. Poetry, etc. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. University of Missouri Press was the first to publish my poetry and short stories. And so the magazine made a good impression on Chet. And when my brother, my older brother Russ, had the idea to write the Chet Atkins biography, but his idea was <clears throat> to use Chet's guitars, the various guitars he had had in his career, mm-hmm. as mileposts along his career path. Mm-hmm. Interesting idea. Yeah, yeah, and Chet had agreed to that. And then I stepped in and I said, well, look, we've got a chance here to tell the whole story, not just the, about the guitars. Mm-hmm. I, think I, I think you need my help on this. And Russ said, come on in. Great. So I wound up spending time with Chet in person and Mm -hmm. on the phone Mm -hmm. and fashioned his biography, which was called Chet Atkins, Me and My Guitars. It was published in 2001 Mm -hmm. and got, I mean, it's a niche book. Sure. You know, it's not going to be of general broad interest. But but I don't know why you didn't publish more copies. Well, because my brother was a crafty publisher, and we published 1,200 copies, hand-signed by Chet, for $150 a pop. Yeah, well. <laughs> and now those same books are selling for 350 yeah. on eBay. Yeah. But uh, Russ said to Chet, my brother Mike wants to do the writing on this, and he wants to expand the concept. And Chet said, fine, Mm -hmm. because I think of his exposure to the Gazette. Mm -hmm. So that was a great thrill. Oh, wow. One of the great thrills of my life. Mm -hmm. But I also have to say the pressure was agonizing because he was my hero, and he was a lot of people's hero. Mm Mm-hmm. A lot, oh, yeah. many thousands of people. And so the pressure to get it right, hmm. Hmm. and not only get it right, but for it to be damn good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So I labored over it. it. Took me two and a half years to write it. Hmm. And I'll just tell you the rest of this real quick. Okay. We sent a, I uh, didn't know Les Paul. I'd never met Les. Uh-huh. I'd known Chet for 40 years. But I didn't know Les Paul. But we sent Les a copy of the book. Oh, okay. And then called him and said, did you get that book we sent you? Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest with my language here. No, no, maybe I won't. <laughs> but Les said, yes, I got it. That's one blank book. <laughs> and then we said, how would you like to have a book like that about your life and career? And his answer was, why, hell yes. <laughs> so, well, what a great so, so we just stepped off you know, from one rock to the next, yeah. went up to Mawa, New Jersey, went to Chet's, I mean, Les's relatively secluded home hmm. there, mm-hmm. knocked on the door, he opened it, we walked in, and it began. Interviews and recording. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. I made numerous trips to New Jersey. I would stay about a week at a time. I didn't stay at Les's house, but I stayed at a motel nearby. Mm -hmm. 
and would spend days with him. Mm-hmm. And uh, then Les was a night owl, so I had a lot of 2, 3, 4 a.m. conversations <laughs> with him on the phone that were recorded. And uh, that book was published in 2005. And uh, I'm very proud of it. Oh. Very proud of yeah. it. And, and Les loved it. I tell you that the way I got approval for the text that I was writing is I would call him up and read it to him. Oh. And he was an excellent listener. And he wouldn't say a word. Unless he, unless he thought I got something wrong. Mm-hmm. And he would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the ending to any book is very important. And when I wrote the ending to Les Paul in his own words, mm-hmm. rather than read it to him, I went to New Jersey. And we sat in his kitchen. Mm. And I read the final text. And he cried. And then I cried. <laughs> mm. And you, you knew you had it right. I don't think it gets any better than that. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, Les Paul was no crybaby. He was mm. tough. Mm. He was tough. He was a warrior. So then we wrote the Hopalong Cassidy book because, because I, I wrote the book because someone saw the Les Paul, Hop, William Boyd, who was Hopalong mm-hmm. Cassidy, his widow saw the Les Paul book mm-hmm. and happened to say, I would love to have a book like this about Bill, mm-hmm. Bill Boyd. Mm-hmm. And the person she said it to just happened to know my brother. Oh, wow. And so connect the dots. Mm-hmm. We wound up doing Hopalong Cassidy, an American legend, mm. um, which has been very well received as well. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, can't go into what it's all about, but it's a wonderful story. Yeah. And you have pictures in all of these oh, books. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's very cool. And it turned out that Don McLean was a hoppy kid. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were a lot of hoppy kids in the early 50s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bill Clinton wrote the foreword to the Hoppy book because he was a Hoppy kid. <laughs> and there's a picture in the book of Bill Clinton at the age of seven in his Hoppy outfit. Man. You know? Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, but another big Hoppy fan was Don McLean. Mm-hmm. Don was a Hoppy kid. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a, an introductory piece as well as Bill Clinton for the book. Oh. And that led to hooking up with Don and writing his biography. Mm-hmm. So And then after that, I was done because it, I put about, it's hard to say, somewhere between 10 and 12 years into mm-hmm. writing the four books. And a lot of other aspects of my life were neglected. Yeah. Put on hold. Yeah. yeah. But I'm proud of the work. Mm-hmm. And it's there. Mm-hmm. It's on the shelf. It is. And uh, with that, uh Why don't we just do a quick uh, public service announcement, and we'll get right back. All right. And we're back with local news in social artistry here on KOPN. Your community radio station. That's local news in social artistry. (laughs) Live! We're live! (laughs) These microphones make us sound so good, man. 
Oh, they do. <laughs> you know, nobody would know that we've been doing this for a while. You're listening to KOPM. <laughs> 89.5 FM. <laughs> well, um, you know, we have, what, 10 minutes left, Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you have good friends right here in the area. Uh, you got, uh, we can go back to Bobby. Uh, Bobby Lee. Bobby Lee and Doug E. Doug e. Lee. <laughs> Bobby Lee Dyer and Doug E. Lee and many, many others. You know, I I don't know. Something about my years in Columbia, I've never really spiritually left Columbia mm-hmm. or the mid-Missouri area, mm-hmm. which includes Easley and what is now known as Cooper's Landing. Yeah. Um, I was going down to the river there in 64, you know. As a Boy Scout, I went camping in the cave. Yeah, the yeah. cave. Oh, yeah. yeah. I went to a couple of crazy parties in the cave. But, yeah, I did know Bob Dyer very well, and uh, I wish he was still with us. Yeah. He, yeah. he was a remarkable and very productive poet, writer, mm-hmm. historian, mm-hmm. Uh, songwriter. Well, you often sing uh, Mike Fink. And, uh, uh, yeah, I sing Mike Some Fink. of his, uh, I don't know if you have some other songs, but I've heard you oh, sing yeah. that my, one just my, about uh, every time. I do, uh, my significant other, Rose Grosjean, and I have worked out a number of Bob Dyer songs, and we sing them as a duo. Mm-hmm. I've heard you all over at the uh, general store. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, L- Doug Ely's Lupus General Store is <laughs> one of the great American venues. Yeah, Pre- pre-COVID, of course, we've yes. had this uh, hiatus, and, and yes. I know Doug is anxious to get back. I hope he is. It's mm-hmm. it's not easy to get restarted. I'm, I haven't played a gig since March of 2020. Ah, yeah. And, you know, you lay off that long, and then you think, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know if I want to. Mm-hmm. But I do, but, you know, mm-hmm. the pandemic changed everything. Yeah. So uh, when you, in terms of uh, singing other people's songs, mm-hmm. um, you say you make your own arrangements. Uh, how, how does that work? Sure, I do my own arrangements, but I'm not a, and I'm, you know, I'm a songwriter. I've mm-hmm. written over 100 songs, which really isn't that many when you consider how long I've been doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I love doing other people's songs. If a song moves me, or and a lot of Bob's songs, Bob Dyer songs, mm-hmm. are just so good. Do you have some... CDs that people can access? Not really. Nah. That, that's I, you know, the one thing I've lacked, Dick, is <laughs> ambition. <laughs> I, uh, I, You know, folks, you heard him say that, but you've also listened to the story of his life. And now tell me, does he have ambition or not? <laughs> not, not? Not to, you know, I don't. You're not a, out for big bucks. I'm and, not out yeah. to self-aggrandize. Yeah. But, I, I but feel, if people want to access your gifts, well, I do have a a CD that it, that it it's called Among Friends, and it includes a whole lot of people ah. from this area. Mm-hmm. Well, I couldn't start naming them. Yeah, a whole lot of people. Mm-hmm. 
But no, you know, I had a realization one time, a long time ago, and it was this. If you're great, you won't have to say so. Mm-hmm. You won't have to go around saying, I'm a genius, or listen to me, I'm good. If you are good, mm-hmm. it'll take care of itself. That's how I feel. Mm-hmm. I don't like to go around trying to draw attention to myself. Mm-hmm. Just Well, it's too late, baby. <laughs> <laughs> You haven't drawn but, attention to yourself. But, but. Ro- Rose and I have had a wonderful time singing Bob Dyer songs. And, you know, the disturbing thing is Bob was very popular when he was alive. He had a number. Of, he, he did the uh, artistry in the schools program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Performed in high schools and grade schools all over the yeah. state. Amazing. But when he passed away, and he had a website that he wrote a beautiful book. Yeah. One of them was Big Muddy, wasn't it? Yes, well, and he wrote the history of Boomville. Uh, maybe that was what I saw. Um, yeah. But, you know, after he passed away, it all just started evaporating, and mm-hmm. Rose and I said, this this isn't right. Yeah. If if you, if people don't sing his songs, mm-hmm. it's just going to be forgotten. And so mm-hmm. we love his songs. We love him. Yeah. And so we did this. Um and, you know, I feel that way about Rose as a songwriter, and I'm a songwriter. And if Who wrote uh, The Little Blue Dot? The Little Blue Dot? Is it? You, 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 you played a song at your birthday party over in Boonville. <laughs> that was a night, wasn't it? That was a great night. My 70th birthday party. And my wife and I came down front to dance a little bit with the others, and we sort of went into a different space as you were singing this song that well, had the little blue dot in it. I don't. Wasn't uh, that? I don't, the, I don't. That doesn't ring a bell. I'm sorry. I would love to uh, take a bath in what you're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> Rose, uh, Marsha, where, where, where can we get some validation on this? <laughs> but uh, that was a, oh, we hadn't even planned to talk about that, but that was yeah, that was that one was of the a, high points of my life, that 70th birthday party at Turner Hall in Boonville, yeah. Missouri, and 200 people showed up. Yeah, and we we celebrated. We had a tribal stomp that yeah. night, yeah. And, folks, I'm talking to Michael Cochran. Uh, lives in Springfield now, uh, musician, author, entrepreneur. We haven't even talked about Nellie's Antiques and other places, but yeah. too many things to talk about. That's but, Okay. But we're uh, we're winding down here. So uh, in our remaining what uh, minute? What, what do you think, uh, Michael? You, you just want to say something to the folks, and then I'll well, do I my would, little closing. I would like to say to you to thank you very oh, much for what a pleasure having me on the show. And um, I may not be eager for you know attention but i really appreciate this it's a kind of recognition it is and i do like that and um i understand you're going to be wrapping it up this series yeah um next month i'm going to do my last show so uh, you you got in under the wire just barely man just barely (laughs) and i'm so glad that's the story of my life i'm just barely getting under the wire this has been a great a great hour thank you Thank Thank you, you, Dick, very, very much. And friends, uh, remember, 
wherever you are, that's your world. Please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it, because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care. Amen. Talk to you soon.